to Bite Size Human Geography, a podcast meant for students and anyone who wants a better understanding of the world. We investigate global issues using human geography concepts. It's human geography made simple. Hi guys, today we are going to be reviewing uh, the population and migration unit. And actually, if this gets too long, I might break this into two separate podcasts, one for population and one for migration. But I wanted to spend some time, since it is the end of the semester, uh, reviewing one of the most important units in AP Human Geography, uh, which is the Population and Migration Unit. And so I'm hoping that you have in front of you, if you're in the, if you're in AP Human Geography, you have the course description, course and exam description in front of you, because I'm going to be using that uh, and reviewing with you the concepts of that class. So go ahead and pause that uh, the podcast and go grab it right now. Okay, so we're going to start off with the first topic, topic 2.1, which is population distribution. And I want to go over with you a few things that you really need to be paying attention to. The first of which is what I like to call the Goldilocks effect. I hope most of you know the story of Goldilocks. And that really applies to the physical geography of the planet and where we like to live as humans. Uh, Humans are relatively lazy. And so we don't like to live where it's too cold, too hot, too wet, or too dry. And so that's why you see the bulk of the population on the planet living in places that are not too cold, too hot, too wet, or too dry. Uh, But make sure that you pay attention to those population distribution maps that uh, I know are in your textbook or probably in your teacher's um, lectures. Hopefully they're in your teacher's lectures. And so that you can see the relationship between where people like to live and the environment, which of course is human environment interaction. That's from the very first unit of um, maybe human geography. When you're focusing on those maps, also make sure that you're zooming in and zooming out, right? You're changing scales. You're going from that zoomed in map, which is a large scale map and seeing how people live and seeing the population distribution. And then you zoom out uh, to more of a small scale map and see the relationship there and how people live on the planet. And you'll see some really interesting patterns throughout the course of this class. Uh, But also take some time to go onto Google Earth or maybe um, Apple Maps and go to some places that maybe you've never seen before that you don't know much about, especially really large cities. Uh, Maybe if you're from the United States, maybe you don't know much about uh, Nigeria. Go to Lagos, Nigeria and zoom in on the population distribution there and compare it to some place, like especially if you're, if you're living in a city in the United States or in North America anywhere, compare it to cities, um, compare Lagos, Nigeria to cities, or maybe your city where you're from, uh, or maybe look at uh, Western European cities and how, you know, kind of zoom in and, and see the, the footprint of those cities and how people live versus someplace like maybe um, Sao Paulo, Brazil. The practical application of what you're learning in this class is so important to your understanding of the material. And uh, that's just something that you should really be doing with every single unit that you uh, cross over into really applying the concepts outside of the classroom. So make sure that you're looking at your maps. Also for this unit, please, please make sure you know some of the big definitions, especially uh, the different density definitions like arithmetic density and uh physiological density, which is the number of people per arable, uh, per unit of arable land, or even agricultural density, which is the ratio of farmers uh, to arable land. There's a lot of stuff that we can learn about a country just based upon something like agricultural density, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, also for this particular section of the course, think about um, 
over and underpopulation and how those contribute to the success of a country or maybe um, the, the strain on a country. So something like over, overpopulation, you're going to have some serious strain on resources, um, especially in urban areas. But then on with underpopulation, you might have an issue where you don't have enough of a working population to be able to support a country economically. So uh, there's many different ways to to look at um, population levels. It's not always about overpopulation, which most kids think it is, but it's not. Underpopulation is just as serious of an issue. Something else from topic 2.1 and 2.2 of the course description for AP Human Geography is also to think about this rural and and urban divide. Um, So rural populations, we tend to think of urban as city, right? And we tend to think of rural as country, which I guess is a, that's an okay way to think about it. Uh, But what I want you to do is to connect that rural-urban divide to development, um, especially the the concept of demographic transition. And as countries begin to develop, where do the majority of their citizens live? We know now that uh, the majority of the population of the planet now lives in urban areas. And so what that tells us is that the planet is beginning to develop across the board. As people move uh, to urban areas, they're moving there because they want job opportunities that urban areas can provide. And of course, that ties into agricultural density because uh, lower agricultural density tells you, for the most part, uh, that you have an increased development in a country because you don't need as many farmers to, to feed your population. The fewer farmers you need, then that tells you that you probably have some great technology to help bring in that harvest and distribute that harvest, right? Um, and now it, it also is connected to the quality of land out there. But that also ties into technology as well, because there's a lot of things that we can do, even if the land is relatively poor, there's a lot of um, interventions that we can take on an agricultural level to help increase agricultural yields, which is basically, uh, we could kind of say the harvest, the amount of food that's being produced in a harvest. So once again, think about those cities that I was talking about earlier, Lagos, Nigeria, or someplace like Sao Paulo in Brazil, and where we have, you know, things like what we call slums or or favelas, that's a term that we use specifically for Brazil. But these, these, this rapid urban growth of people moving from rural to urban areas, it puts a tremendous strain on resources. And so you have these pop-up cities that are created where you don't have proper infrastructure in place provided for by the government. And people just pretty much take the matter into their own hands and they create these really vibrant communities, but they are lacking in, in resources. Sometimes they're lacking in plumbing. Sometimes they're lacking basic sanitation, Oftentimes, they're lacking in um, education systems as well uh, for the populations there. So this is something to be thinking about uh, when we talk about distribution of population. Okay, so let's move on to topic 2.3 from the uh, course description. And actually, I have it in front of me. And 2.4. Okay, so the first one is population composition. And then the other one's population dynamics. And this is really where you need to have just really great knowledge of population pyramids. So if you're a little fuzzy about population pyramids, I highly suggest, I'm going to link it at the bottom um, of the show notes. There's a great TED ed on population pyramids. Um, It's a quick review. It's probably like five minutes. And then once you do that, I want you to go to population pyramid and it's it's singular population pyramid.net. It's a great way for you to practice understanding population pyramids because when you're looking at population pyramids, it's not just reading them. You have to apply the concepts of the population pyramid and understand that we use these population pyramids. It's a tool, right? It's a, it's a data tool. Instead of looking at charts and charts of, of numbers, it's data visualization. And it allows us to, to read the population pyramid, but then analyze and predict 
based upon that data. So you're analyzing the past, especially, you know, if you go to populationpyramid.net, go to a country um, like Russia, go to a country like Japan, um, or even Italy, or uh, someplace like Niger, and take a look at how different those population pyramids are. You could see the aging population in those first countries that I talked about. And then especially for a country like Nigeria, you could see this just tremendous um, TFR, the total fertility rate, the, the implication of that, because it's just that classic uh, population pyramid with a really, really wide base. Um, and so you get all this data, of course, from your census. So make sure that you know how you collect that data. And that happens from a census and countries do this. It's not just uh, the United States that, do, that does this. Countries have been doing this for, for really thousands of years because you have to know who makes up your, your country. Uh, but that all of that data helps to uh, helps us to not only to build the population pyramid, but also to analyze um, and then also predict the future. What's going to happen in the future with these countries? So like if you look at China's population pyramid, you begin to see the impact or you can see the impact of that one child policy because there are we're missing millions of females as opposed to males. And you could see it on the population pyramid. When you're looking at a country like Japan or Italy, and you could see that that inversion that begins to take place on that population pyramid. So it's the basically the exact opposite of a country like Niger. When you see that inverted population pyramid to where it gets that V-shape, you know that a country uh, like Japan or Italy is is headed into or maybe is already in stage five of demographic transition. And if you need a refresher on demographic transition, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time going over it today because I've got a whole podcast on it already. So I don't I don't ever like duplicating myself if I can all if I can avoid it. So I suggest that's where you go if you need a refresher on demographic transition. But back to those population pyramids. We can also, you know, if we look at that population pyramid of Japan, uh, that tells us that they're going to have a really uh, kind of a, a really challenging elderly dependency ratio. Whereas if we look at Niger's population pyramid, we know that their population is going to be dealing with youth dependency. So uh, if you look at Niger, they've got to do things like build schools and plan for jobs in the future and uh, start building some serious infrastructure. Whereas Japan, their biggest concern is how are we going to pay for all this stuff because we don't have enough of a population to be able to afford, we don't have enough of a working population to afford all of the elderly population uh, because our society is aging so rapidly. So there's a lot of um, a lot of really great analysis that you can do with those population pyramids. And it's really important that you not only can read a population pyramid, but you can apply the concepts of what does this mean to a country. Uh, so for instance, if you have that inverted population pyramid, like in Italy, well, that you can pretty much assume that's going to be a country that's going to probably allow for more migration in because you do have those those really challenging elderly dependency ratios. And sometimes the only way that you can make that up is through migration in. You can also make the connection with these population pyramids of whether or not countries are going to be employing uh, pronatalist or antinatalist policies. Uh, so with a really, really wide base of a population pyramid, you might be able to make the connection that at some point in time, they're going to want to try and create an antinatalist policy. So if you go back to that populationpyramid.net and pull uh, China's population pyramid back in 1970, it's got that classic shape, uh, that classic rapid growth population pyramid shape. And uh, at that time, I'm, I have it right in front of me right now, it had 827 million people in their country. And so it makes sense that at that time, they were thinking about those antinatalist policies that they put into place later on, which had a huge impact 
Um, the, you know, the one child policy had this huge impact on the country, but it's a really great example of an antinatalist policy, which had these long term consequences that no one really realized or understood, which have these uh, has a very negative effect on the country and will have a negative effect on the country in the future, which also led them to revoke the one child policy because the, uh, the Chinese government uh, began to understand those really long-term negative consequences. Pro-natalist policies, on the other hand, these are going to be in countries where you do see those inverted population pyramids. So think about a country like Italy or uh, maybe even, um, well, in Japan, Japan had their, had their angel plan. But the end, uh, think about South Korea, kind of the same thing. These are countries that are struggling to have uh, people uh, have children. Their TFR levels, their total fertility rate levels are really, really low. Natural increase rate levels are really low. And so governments in um, in countries like this, they're basically creating incentives to encourage uh, women to have children because they're very concerned about what the future holds. And the problem with these pro-natalist policies, whether it's in Korea or whether it's in Japan or um, all throughout Western Europe, to be quite honest, they don't really work uh, because you can't pay people to have children. And one of the things I always love to have my students do is to Google or to use your favorite search engine uh, of how much does it cost to raise a child, especially in some place like the United States, to the age of about 18. And it's shocking the number that, that comes up every year. It tends to increase every single year, and I haven't really checked it for this year. Uh, but typically in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is not including uh, college education, so having children in an MDC is really, it's expensive. And uh, women uh, oftentimes make the decision, look, I've spent you know all this money on my education. I want to work and um, I want to have my career. And having uh, lots of children is just not in the cards for me. And so that's part of the reason why that we have those falling TFR levels. So I kind of just jumped into topic. I'm looking at it right now, topic 2.8 and 2.9. And we also covered topic 2.7 and 2.5 as well. I totally skipped over Malthusian theory. So let me go ahead and go over Malthusian theory for you right now. Uh, Malthus is a name that you should know, Thomas Malthus. And if you recall, he is, um, he is responsible for what we call Malthusian theory. And you tend to see this represented um, in a graph. And on the graph, you'll see a line um, that tends to run at about a 45-degree angle, which represents food production. And then you also tend to see um, another line, which is a, well, a curve, which we call a J-curve, which represents population. And where those two cross over, which we, uh, we tend to call this point of crisis, what uh, Malthus was basically saying is that at a certain point in time, with population levels increasing so rapidly, the number of po the population would basically outstrip resources, and the end result of the end result of that would be just a, a, a catastrophe for society, and would lead to all kinds of um, horrible things. You know, people dying and wars and um, that type of stuff. When we look at Malthus, what we realize is that his theories, of course, were not correct. He could not have possibly foreseen uh, the end results of the Industrial Revolution, which he was just on the cusp of. He could not have foreseen uh, mechanized agriculture. He could not have foreseen genetic modification of food of, of uh, organisms. He could not have foreseen uh, the role of birth control and the changing role of women in society. So that's why Malthus's theories tend to not play out. However, we do have a group of people that came, uh, kind of came to prominence in the 1960s, uh, that we call these neo-Malthusians. And neo-Malthusians, the, the the number one neo-Malthusian that we tend to think of is Paul Ehrlich, and uh, he wrote a book that basically took Malthus's theories and applied them to more local regions. So instead of like entire 
you know, the entire planet, what he said is, okay, there might be certain places on the planet where you see that Malthusian nightmare play out. Um, and, uh, we needed to do things like, you know, to encourage, uh, forcible sterilization of people and widespread use of birth control and, um, a whole host of other methods to prevent, uh, really high levels of, um, high TFR rates. So I, what I like to tell my students is that if you had a dinner party uh, and you had, you would probably have Thomas Malthus and uh, Paul Ehrlich and maybe Thanos, <laughs> for those of you that like your Avengers movies, uh, sitting at the dinner table and kind of hanging out and having a good old conversation. So these would be our environmental determinists, right? That, that there's these, uh, our environment is fixed. There's not much we can do to change things. We have to change ourselves because there's no way that our environment could provide enough food to feed, uh, this ever growing population on our planet. But at the other end of the table and probably sitting all by herself, we would have Esther Bosrup and she is one of our environmental possibilists who thinks that, or who thought we're a creative species and we can find a way to feed our population through a whole host of other means. Uh, this is something that we discussed quite a bit in the ag unit, so I don't want to go too far into it, but I do want to make sure that we can juxtapose Bosrup versus Malthus. One thing I want you to think about, uh, those of you that are prepping for a test, is especially when you're applying the concepts of po the population unit, remember that this is a unit that will pop up in every single other unit, whether it's uh, the political unit or agriculture or cities and urban development. The reason why this particular unit, I think, is the linchpin of all of the other units that really ties the entire class together is because you can layer all of this information. So when you talk about education levels, when you talk about development, that can easily tie into the political unit. When you look at agriculture, well, you're going to be discussing education levels and role of women and rural to urban migration. All of that is connected to the population and migration unit. And especially when you're approaching this from the written portion of this exam, so the FRQ portion of this exam, you'll almost always see an FRQ, uh, one of the three FRQs, if you're taking the AP Human Geography exam, that has to do with population and migration. But I can guarantee you there's going to be some overlap to all of the other FRQs as well. So just keep that in mind. This is a unit that you really have to have down, to have to have it cemented on your brain. And taking the time to understand the vocabulary. And of course, it's always, you know, more than just about the rote memorization of the terms. It's about the application of the terms. And I always suggest go to Netflix. If you have Netflix or Prime or even anything on YouTube, any type of streaming and look for some travel videos or maybe some food documentary videos. A really good one that I love to watch on Netflix is Somebody Feed Phil. And, uh, this, the person who does this documentary, they travel all over the world and it's just, it's just human geography on Netflix is the bottom line. Great, great videos. But honestly, you can find this on any type of streaming platform or YouTube. And really what you're trying to do is apply the concepts of the class. So that's it. I'm at 19 minutes. I try to keep this under 20 minutes. Uh, I hope this was a good review for you for the population unit. And I will have to make a second one for migration but I wish you the best of luck in all of your studies.